This week is a Disney special. Here's critic Larushka Ivanzada on Disney's female characters. I think the next evolution will be beyond that. It's like we've gone from girly princess, who's very girly, who's just, you know, the happy ending is in marriage through warrior princess. And I now feel we can get to more complicated, perhaps, representation of women, which is where they're going now. I also chat to Raya and the Last Dragon screenwriter Adele Lim and producer Oznat Shura, plus Disney's Director of Diversity and Inclusion, Mahim Ibrahim. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm going to get that gun of mine and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels. You know, I think you're the only girl in the world that can stand on a stage with a spotlight in her eye and still see a diamond inside a man's pocket. Because I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me to my face, you're never going to give me the scores I deserve? Hello, I'm your host, Anna Smith. And today we're looking at Disney films through a feminist lens. Have we moved on from the idealised princess trope to something more realistic and inclusive? I'll be speaking to three women who are trying to shake things up at the House of Mouse. But first, I catch up with Metro film critic and Disney nut, Larushka Ivanzada. Larushka, welcome back to Girls on Film. Oh, thank you for having me back again. Well, it's a treat to have you back. And it's also celebrating the cinemas being back open in the UK. What have you been see lately, I believe... Uh, a Quiet Place Part 2, is that correct? That is correct. And I think it's the first time I worked out that I've been in the cinema scene since seeing Wonder Woman 84 in December. So that's the longest I've probably ever been in my adult life, not seeing, <laughs> not in the cinema in consecutive months. And it was wonderful. I have to say, it really made a difference. I mean, I've always been such a champion of the big screen, but really that experience of sitting there in the dark with a screen that is just so much bigger than you are it's just, it is very, it sounds obvious, it's a very different way to experience a film rather than you being bigger than the screen and watching it perhaps on your mobile or your laptop film. That feeling of feeling engulfed and being within a film was just wildly exciting to be part of again. And is it a good film? I really enjoyed Quiet Place Part 2. I enjoyed Quiet Place 1. Yeah, breathtakingly tense. And this is just as tense, perhaps even more tense. It's really got that sequel thing. We're going to have more tension, almost overwhelms you with tension and drama. The difference this time around, it does follow on. There's a kind of brief recap at the beginning of the film, which goes over to what the situation they're in and aliens taking over the world. They suddenly just invade and just seem to gobble up everybody who makes any sound. So all the humans have to be very quiet. And there's a family that survives, led by John Krasinski, who is also the director of the film. And the mother is Emily Blunt, who is his real-life wife. And they have two children, played Noah Jupp and Millicent Simmons. Can we say the spoiler of the end of the first one? I think I think we can. Mm-hmm. It's in the trailer, is okay. it? I mean, I don't know. There's only Skip three over now if you haven't seen the first one. Yes. But yeah, uh, yeah. Basically, the, the father is no more. Uh, at the end of the last one and the family are left to survive without him and this really sees Millicent Simmons character come to the fore so she's this amazing young deaf actor who plays a deaf character in the film and honestly she's extraordinary and she is now my favorite survivor girl I think possibly of all time having watched this film she's got this wonderful face that's just so I don't know it's so sort of fluid and she does vulnerability so well but here she's got this incredible resilience her character has as kind of has to keep her family safe and try and find a sanctuary for them so, I mean the, the first film was a star making role for her but this is definitely going to break her out I think into, and hopefully we'll see her get into other roles I mean obviously there aren't a lot of roles for deaf characters but I think she's so good an actor that when she goes up for parts they probably 
might even change the character to become a deaf character because she's just so wonderfully expressive. That wouldn't that be great? I think that's that's really important. It sounds like this is quite a good film on the sort of feminism and representation side. So. Double tick. Yes, <laughs> and jolly scary as well. So. Jolly scary. That's what we want. Great. Okay. Quite place part two. We're actually here mainly to talk about Disney films today, and yes. you know why I thought of you, Larushka. Well, tell <laughs> the audience why I thought of you and Disney Pixar. Because I'm obsessed with Disney and Pixar. Perhaps <laughs> that's uh, the one. I also have two children who are. Uh, age well two daughters who are age six and nine so I watch a lot of Disney but I have to say I think I watch more Disney than them it's like I let them watch the films with me occasionally but actually I'd probably just watch them (laughs) by myself I do adore Pixar films and I've enjoyed Disney more and more as they're kind of trying to, I don't know, adapt and modernise, particularly with how they portray women on screen. Well, that leads me nicely to my next question. I mean, how do you feel that that uh, has progressed in the last, I don't know, 10, 20 years, but then even particularly in the people that we're talking to later in the show today, we see that they're really making the effort now in the last few years in the current time to really bring that representation forward? God, they've cut such strides in the last 10 years. I mean, as you say, 10 years, let's think. I mean, my, one of my daughters is called Merida after after Brave, deliberately after Brave, who is the first Pixar female character, obviously another kind of, well, Pixar Disney, I know they're different, but she is kind of a Disney princess. So yes, I have a vested and deep, passionate interest in the evolution of the Disney princess. And I think they really are trying. And it's so interesting to see how they're trying to make stronger princess characters because obviously we've come a long way since Snow White and someday my prince will come and this princess who wants to be rescued and she just you know if you think of Snow White as the archetypal Disney princess you know she's abused by her stepmother left to die in the forest and then sort of waits around literally sort of sits around waiting for her prince to come while doing the housework for seven men in a house and so it's like hmm Role models, not really what I want to give to my daughters. We've come a long way since then, but they've really tried to, I suppose, that they've sort of given the women these male roles in a way. So there's lots of warrior princesses that have come out, like Merida, uh, and also mo- most recently Mulan. So there's been that. But I think trying to see perhaps, I think the next evolution will be beyond that. It's like we've gone from like girly princess who's very girly, who's just, you know, the happy ending is in marriage through warrior princess. And I now feel we can get to more complicated, perhaps, representation of women, which is where they're going now. And what I've really liked, actually, of the the recent princesses, Mulan came in for a bit of stick, the live action remake of Mulan, as almost being too woke or not woke enough, or is she too... What I felt was that it's almost like a Disney princess has to carry so much baggage now and has to be so many things to so many people in such the right way that they've lost their sense of fun and humour and all the things that lots of you know us loved about Disney princesses. And what I really liked about Raya and the Last Dragon, which is the most recent Disney princess film that I've seen, is that it was more playful and it got rid of that narrative, which I've seen in a lot of films that I'm very aware of watching my daughters, where you have perhaps a strong father who's the warrior chief and then you've got this young princess who wants to be a warrior too and the dad's like, hey, you can't be a warrior because you're a princess and you have to marry the prince. And they've ditched that, which is so refreshing. So instead of Rhea and the last dragon, her father is a chief. She wants to be a warrior princess. She is a warrior princess. Like he's totally happy with that. He's totally down with that. There isn't that kind of replaying of that message which obviously historically was true, but for the generation of my children, they don't really know that narrative. To them, it's teaching them that narrative that isn't actually part of their upbringing. And it's almost making them aware of something which I don't really want to inculcate in them. 
That's fascinating. So it doesn't need to be addressed anymore because it's hopefully not so much of an issue. Yeah, so we just present historical. it. Yeah, we present it as it should be and as it hopefully in most cases is. Yeah, yeah. It's more more inspirational, I think. And Aquafina, I thought was great in this. Her voice acting as a dragon. Oh yeah, she was wonderful, and it has, that was so great as well to have just not the female princess who's got the cute sort of male sidekick character, but it's one that's voiced by a, a woman as well. So that was that was a, probably a first, as far as I can work out exactly yes multiple female characters shocker yes. brilliant <laughs> know, Def- exactly. definitely a Bechdale test cut past that one <laughs> i just shape change and the people dragons can do that this this was my sister prani's thing look at my my people arms and my people face look how close my butt is to my head now that you don't have to hide me getting the rest of the gems is gonna be a breeze yeah well this one was easy but the rest of them are being held by a bunch of no good binturi Now let's move on to Disney's latest uh, big screen release, a live action version of Cruella, which I have seen on the big screen and I believe you have seen as well, Arushka. I have seen and I don't know what you think about it because we haven't discussed it yet. So it's like, ooh, a mystery reveal. Um, All under wraps. Well, I really enjoyed it. I thought uh, Emma Stone was tremendous in the lead role. Um, I thought Emma Thompson is marvellous as her kind of fashion designer nemesis. I thought the costumes are obviously fabulous. I love the fact that it's set in 1970s London. And it's I like the fact that it's it's a kind of a, a prequel trying to explain Cruella's uh, shady past, but nowhere near as shady as the Cruella we've come to know. From the very beginning, I realised I saw the world differently than everyone else. That didn't sit well with some people. But I wasn't for everyone. I guess they were always scared that I'd be a psycho. (laughs) I did have some issues with some of the supporting characters. I thought... 50-50 50-50 with them. I thought the, the, the sort of the goons were okay, but then there were some terrible kind of posh British characters, which made my skin crawl. But, but what I loved about this is that it ultimately turned into a story about publicity stunts and one-upmanship because you've got an established fashion designer and a would-be fashion designer, both sort of competing against each other for attention. And I thought that was so much fun. I loved it too. Oh, yay. Uh, but it took me a while to kind of get into and decide whether I was going to love it because the thing with an origin story like this is we all know where Cruella ends up we think we do I mean she's like the ultimate Disney villain she skins puppies I mean you don't get much more evil than that particularly in a Disney film and because you know that that's kind of how she's going to get end up particularly when you see the early scenes of her as a child you think well how is she going to go from that to that I'm not quite sure that they actually ended up joining those dots because making someone sympathetic as a heroine as as Cruella is in this film is quite hard to then shift into the ultimate baddie so I wasn't quite sure but I think what they do I mean Emma Stone is so amazing in this role that that she joins up the dots that aren't really joining up she manages to make a coherent character out of a slightly incoherent character Uh, and I think you know honestly it's a ward-worthy performance what she pulls off here. What do you think about the relationship between the two central women in in particular in this film? I I did find that a bit problematic I think I think the difficult thing when you're a feminist watching like Cruella is you spend a lot of time thinking hmm where's the feminist politics in this I don't know if that (laughs) slightly takes me out of the story and the fact that as a as a central character as our heroine in the story Cruella has to have our sympathies 
And we have to be empathetic to this baddie in a way that we obviously weren't in the original 101 Dalmatians. We didn't spend a lot of 101 Dalmatians going, oh, poor Cruella, I wonder what affected her in her childhood that would make her behave like this. But what they've done is sort of shifted the baddie back another generation. So we do feel sympathy towards Cruella, but we do not like... Emma Thompson, who plays her boss in this film. I mean, the baddie still exists. She's still kind of unsympathetic. There is a, a twinge of sympathy with Emma Thompson's character. She has this speech where, where she tells Emma Stone, who plays her assistant, you can't care about anyone else or you don't get ahead in this world. It was like this kind of working girl career speech, like of this generation, I've had to dehumanize myself as a woman to get ahead. Let me give you some advice. You can't care about anyone else. Everyone else is an obstacle. You care what an obstacle wants or feels, you're dead. If I'd cared about anyone or thing, I might have died. You have the talent. Whether you have the killer instinct is the big question. They don't really play on that. And I did feel it was a bit sort of tired, that that sort of rivalry of the toxic female boss of the kind of working girl, Devil Wells Prada, and then you've got the plucky career girl sort of trying to come up the ranks. And the only way that she can get ahead of her boss is essentially to push her down the stairs. And I feel like that female rivalry is a bit regressive. And it is, I mean, as a film, it's totally lacking in sisterhood, I have to say. But, but, but I don't know. On the other hand, that means you get two very strong female characters battling against each other. I don't, I don't know how you felt about that. I had, I had similarly mixed feelings. I had to say it was hugely enjoyable because you, you know, whatever happens, you've got two very powerful, very intelligent women at the centre of a story. They, ni- neither of them have a love interest. There's maybe the tiniest hint of one, but it's, it, is, it is not requited, I don't think. So it's very much about their careers, yep. their relationship with each other. It's not too much about any other family members without going into detail. Um, it is, it, you know, and, and Cruella herself has two um, male friends, sidekicks, platonic. And all that combination is quite unusual, I think. So that's to be applauded. But I did share your your slight reticence in terms of, you know, that level of rivalry. Yes. I have to say, Although what you said there, which I think is a key point here, is it's a lot of fun. This film is a lot of fun and you love Emma Stone as this character. I mean, I was just like, she is fabulous. Even the young version of her, she plays her, the, the girl who plays her, plays her like this kind of quite cheeky, younger Centrinians character. I mean, she's sort of bad and cheeky and always brilliant, but she has a lot of fun all the way through. And it's that makes her a bit different from other sort of baddie origin stories, perhaps like Maleficent or the Joker, this idea of this abused child who's been twisted in some way, in some out of shape way, into this bitter, vengeful character. And there is trauma that happens in Cruella's childhood, but she also makes it very clear that she was sort of born, as she puts it, brilliant and mad and a little bit bad. She's always had this very sort of transgressive, bad side to her character, which she's enjoyed. And I feel what's really quite quite transgressive about this film is the fact that she's unleashed this badness inside of her. And that is part of her DNA. It's part of her core being. It's like sort of Elsa from Frozen meets Fleabag, this kind of let it go. And this let it go that comes out is actually not full of butterflies and bluebirds and, and loveliness and love. It's, it's full of like transgressive, energetic Punk rock. But, yeah, punk rock. <laughs> She's got the punk rock aesthetic. As you say, it's set in 1970s London. She really channels that bad girl, bad girl 
vibe. But the thing is, I'm not sweet, Stella. I never was. The meeting, darling. I remember you have a bit of an extreme side. People do need a villain to believe in. <laughs> Yes, she's playful. She's not icy. Yeah. Um, although she can be icy when she wants to be. But I think more of that goes actually to Emma Thompson. Um, so in a way, you know, the, the Glenn Close type performances that we're used to, this is very, very far removed from that. Um, but she, she's just incredibly naughty and incredibly clever. Um, and, it, and it is fun and funny. And I must say, I, I've just recently been at the Fido Awards, which, as you know, I'm a judge um, for, the, for the best performance of dogs in film. And I wish um, this had come into our window because there's some fantastic canine performances in this film. Wonderful. There really are. Um, <laughs> there, there's one little uh, dog that her, her goon um, has as, as a sidekick and he ha at one point he has to dress up, pretend to be pest control and they dress this dog up as a little rat with a little woolly coat on it. Anyway, it's very funny, isn't oh, it's it? A Wink the dog, which is Wink. a for a dog as well. It's adorable. <laughs> Without spoilers, they, they sort of tackle the elephant in the room, which is the issue of wearing real fur or not. Yeah, I felt it's difficult to say without spoilers, but I felt they sort of fudged that a bit. I felt that's where the sort of Disney soft soap had come in a little bit. The, you know, they, they didn't go as far as perhaps they could um, or they should to be true to the original story. But I guess, you know, can't, you can't have everything in a film. I mean, this is a 12A certificate and I definitely say it is pitched at the... Well, I mean, 12A is what most of the superhero films are, and it's definitely pitched at that kind of tween and up audience. It's not one for children. My, my, I mean, my nine-year-old would probably watch it, but definitely not the six-year-old. I was going to ask you that, actually. Yeah. Do, you, do you think, would you be happy with them watching it in terms of, you know, the female characters, et cetera, everything we're talking about? Yeah, I think so. It's, it, what's, what it reminds me of, actually, is um, in tone, is closest to Enola Holmes, which is the Netflix film that was released um, last year, which is about the backstory of uh, Sherlock Holmes's fictional younger sister, played by Millie Bob. Bobby Brown, uh, whose mother is played by Helena Bonham Carter. And that has a similar kind of energy and bounce and feeling of this slightly this complex female character who has different sides to her and is incredibly resilient and resourceful. And that's what you get from Corella. I mean, weirdly, she is a fantastic role model, apart from the, the psychopathic sort of cruelty for for girls, yes. Well, she's a, she's a go-getter. She's a self-starter. Yeah. She's an entrepreneur. She and is, she doesn't rely on anyone else. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, there, there's a lot to admire in that. So I think we both say that we are recommending Cruella and what fun to see it on the big screen, what, what fun to be back in cinemas. Well, Rishka, is there anything else that you want to tell us about today? Are you working on anything that our lovely listeners should know about? Where I am by the seaside in Deal, uh, we're gearing up for venues reopening and we're really looking forward to sort of starting screenings with everyone else because there isn't anything although we love doing everything online there just isn't the same thing as being in a room with other people when you're watching a film is there and feeling that kind of the applause and the laughter and the jumping out of your seat so I can't wait for that to all start back again oh, well best of luck with that and do come back again and see us soon thank you that was Larishka Ivanzada. Next up, I speak to Adele Lim and Oznat Shura about creating a new kind of Disney princess in the animation Raya and the Last Dragon. Welcome to Girls on Film to you both. Well, we're a feminist podcast, so uh, we applaud the fabulous female characters. Not one, not two, not three, but loads of them in this film. <laughs> My whole life, I trained to become a guardian of the Dragon Gem. But this world has changed. People are divided. 
now to restore peace. I must find the last dragon. My name is Raya. Adele, first, what kind of issues did you think about from a feminist perspective when you were writing this? You know, I think when we were really shaping this movie in the beginning, I don't think we start with the thing saying like, we're going to start, we're going to have a movie with three strong female leads. It came from a place of, you know, what are the most interesting characters to us and to me personally also, you know, with Southeast Asia being the inspiration, what the world may not see is or understand about the region is that we have a great history of strong female warriors and leaders, you know, up to this day. And so, you know, having the, the character of Raya being raised as a leader was very appealing uh, to all of us. And also, you know, this friendship she has with Sisu, it is so rare to see a major Hollywood movie have a female friendship at its heart, at its core, you know, having that buddy cop dynamic and celebrating that. And also her relationship with Namari. When uh, Namari was first conceived, she was much more of your classic villain. But when we really tried to dig deeper with her and find out what makes her more complex, what makes the dynamic much more engaging, you know, having her have this, you know, deep history with Rai, for them to have a complex relationship, to have known each other as children, to view each other as enemies, but also be very drawn to each other, you know, and find a way to sort of come together at the end was a dynamic and a story and a journey that, you know, none of us had really seen before. And we were very excited by. Hey there, Princess Undercut. Fancy meeting you here. You and the dragon gem pieces are coming with me. Hmm. My sword here says we're not. Yeah, I knew you couldn't handle rolling solo. You're nothing without your band. Stand down. This shouldn't take long. I'm just gonna add that um, part of what I love about it too is that their gender is never the issue they have to solve or a problem or a hurdle. They're just heroes um, on a hero's journey. They're just a story of characters who have to save their world and do it in a way that's very specific to who they are, including their gender. Well, it's not that you've raised a really good point because one of the things that we're working towards in Girls and Film is exactly that, that, you know, it, it, it just isn't an issue. The women are presented as women and women of colour are just there doing great things. And it's not, it's something commented upon. Um, I mean, from your perspective, um, why do we need more of this? And why is it important that Disney support these kind of things? I mean, for me, I didn't even realize until later on in the film how important it was and how much how, what I felt when I saw all these all these strong female characters on the film, having a friendship, having, you know, having a flight, having just being being regular people. I think we, we want to see ourselves on screen. We want it to reflect our world more. We want to be able to just have characters that gender is part of part of what I bring to the table, which is great, but it's not a hardship or something that should make me in any way a minority. And I do think that the way that the um, characters were treated, they're characters who could be inspirational for boys or girls. They're just characters with, with their own flaws and their own journey. And it's a journey we can all relate to. It's hard to trust each other. It's hard to take the first step when you're not sure what the result is going to be, or if you've been betrayed, it is hard to do. And yet, we know, and, and I would call it probably a feminine trait, whether it comes in a man or a woman, we know we all have to come together to, to make this world a better place, including our differences, not even despite them. What could be more exciting message to give? Just wanted to add to the, the wonderful things that was not said is that, you know, as a young woman growing up, you know, in Southeast Asia, it's very easy to feel that, you know, on a global stage that your story does not matter as much as a woman, as a person of color. And I think what, you know, the wonderful thing about having Raya 
uh, you know, be a Disney animated feature is to show, you know, that definitely as our, our point of view as storytellers, as women, you know, is worthwhile celebrating, does deserve to be on the large stage. And also, you know, as a message to like, you know, little girls and boys everywhere, that it doesn't matter like where you come from, what you look like, um, you know, whether you feel like you're being seen or not, that your story has a place in the world also. Well, are these the kind of conversations you're having with the wider team when this project is in the early stages, perhaps? It's like you want to speak? You know, it's really interesting because um, there was no objection. Like I, I didn't have to fight my way through to the strength of these characters. It was as we built the character and she became more and more compelling, all our team members, men and women, started embracing her power, her strength. I think in each film, there are some, I worked on Moana before this, and in each film, there are moments where you have to break through some old habits. How would she stand and pose? How is a Disney princess supposed to stand and pose? Well, she's a warrior. How would she stand as a warrior? And and you need to break a few old habits. I come from Israel. Uh, The idea of a woman having to give command in, in in a difficult situation is very comfortable for me, but it's not that common. You don't even see it in movies. It's uh, the expectation is that you'll go, hey, excuse me, can you please, if you don't mind, as opposed to just, just get on the horse, we have to go. So all those things are, 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 are things that you have to break open. And sometimes any one of us would have to in the room go, hey, you know, what if, for example, we used what we can, which is, okay, every uh, crowd scene is 50-50, whether it's on a battleground or in the kitchen. And you can do that. And it's not that hard to do. And it subliminally starts to reflect our world so much more. I come from a long line of strong women. And it's nice to see more of ourselves on that screen. That is completely awesome. Etel, are there any moments when you were writing them that you really hoped would resonate with young girls and indeed young boys? Because as we've been saying, it's really important that boys see positive female role models. But is there anything that you're really hoping will, will strike a chord with them? Definitely. I think it came around the discussion of whether or not Raya should be a princess, because, you know, just because she's the lead of a Disney movie, does she need to be a princess? And we decided that she really did. There were two things, you know, Osnat brings up the fact that being a leader also gives her a greater burden of responsibility. But also, even though Kumandra is a fictional land, Raya is a fictional character, the trouble she faces in the world today is absolutely reflected in the actual world. And, you know, young girls can see that too growing up. And that for Raya, you know, she has been raised to be a leader and that, you know, that she can be proactive and have agency in trying to fix the issues of the world around her and accurately showing how difficult that is, that it's not about, you know, one magical solution. It's not just about doing the right thing once and having it be easy. It is going to be a fight that takes repeated efforts and it takes, you know, it takes a collective. And so I think for, you know, young girls to be able to look at that and go like, it is great to be strong and passionate and sometimes realize like maybe we're coming from a wrong point of view and to be okay with that and to learn and to grow and to you know to always just keep fighting for what's right because it's not going to be easy but it's the only way we're going to get through this world together so women are going to save the world basically is what we're looking at yes uh, as we always have (laughs) (laughs) is there anything else and before i let you go on a kind of just a representation perspective that is really important to either of you because obviously we've covered a bit of ground and but i think the film does such a great job on so many levels i just wanted to add to what Ozna had said earlier you know about the representation you see on screen and i think 
that speaks to the representation you see behind the screen, that on every level that there are women, whether, you know, I'm half of a co-writing team, our head of story, Vaughn Von, uh, Vera Soon Thorne, but even with our story artists, visual development, our animators, that there, you know, that there are so many wonderful women there who are already part of the Disney family before Raya. For all of us, having allyship is a big deal because the environment was very open, but sometimes it takes a voice. It takes that voice being amplified and being supported for it to make it into the movie. And so that there is, there was a community and a sisterhood behind the scenes has everything to do with the movie that you're seeing right now. And I'm going to just add to that because I think we're the first movie where the heads of technology, and we're talking about high technology on this film, the head of technology and her two seconds were all a female technology leading team. So it's not just in, you know, one area or production management or anywhere like that. There's a variety of us um, growing in the studio, I think, and having more and more of a voice. And I think one of the really important things is that I think the film touches on is the courage to be vulnerable. You know, we tend to think of courage as fighting and winning, and our characters are great fighters. We did not take that away, but the day is saved not through that. The day is saved through allowing yourself to be vulnerable, to take the first step, to try to walk a mile in another person's shoes and, and understand, you know, have, have that empathy. And I think those are all feminine traits, whether they're found in men or women. And I think we help bring that to the table. Well, nice work. Um, congratulations again to you both. And thank you so much for joining Girls on Film. Thank you. Thank you. Well, why, why are you looking at me like that? Uh, <laughs> nothing. I, I'm just not used to seeing dragons. Impressed, huh? Oh, wait till you see my backstroke. I'm a wicked when I hit that liquid. I got water skills that kill. I slaughter when I hit the water. I'm like, really good at swimming through rhyme. I was trying to make that, that I'm really good at swimming. I'm a good swimmer. It's basically what I'm Okay, um, we need to keep going. That was Adele Lim and Oznat Shura. My final guest is Mahim Ibrahim, who's overseeing Disney's Launchpad, a programme designed to celebrate underrepresented storytellers. Tell us first a little bit about yourself and your background at Disney. So I joined the company nearly three years ago to develop the Disney Launchpad Shorts Incubator from the ground up, which is the first public-facing studios program for diversity and inclusion and talent development Our goal with the program is to diversify the types of stories we are telling and who is telling them and to give access and opportunity to those who historically have not had it in Hollywood. My background, actually, I spent most of my career in tech, so I had always really wanted to work in Hollywood and entertainment, but it seemed very inaccessible uh, for me. So I kind of pinched myself, honestly that I work at one of the most largest global studios in the world. And if people don't know what Launchpad is, you've given us a little bit of background, but can you tell us a little bit more exactly how the process worked, how people found you or you found people, and then what next steps were taken? So the goal of Launchpad, first and foremost, is to give access and opportunity to those who have historically not had it. So we really started at the core with that. And the second part, what we realized through our own discovery and going through the process is to firstly tell an original short, but with the goal of telling the most personal and authentic story we could from the filmmaker's point of view. So a lot of the shorts really come from uh, personal experiences from the filmmakers. This is a story of how we all celebrate individual cultures. 
fear of not being accepted really can be a huge power over you. As much as that can be a shared experience, I hope people feel they can be a part of a community. What's most important is to tell a story that really matters to you. To tell untold stories, the best that you can think of, it was fantastic. We all just want to be recognized as ourselves. In the production process, what we ourselves came to understand is that this wasn't just for the filmmakers or for us. Uh, the goal was really to represent the child within us who may not have seen themselves on screen before. So also to tell stories uh, for our communities as well. Can you tell me a bit more about the themes that these first few short films explore? So for season one, the theme is discover. And that is really open to interpretation, both for the filmmakers, as well as the audience. For season two, which is being run by Philip Domfay, the theme is connection. And we cannot think of a better time as the world continues to go through a global pandemic, what connection uh, really means to each and every one of us during this kind of time fraught with many challenges. Really, it is open to the applicants for season two to kind of interpret this theme however they like. It's very fluid. So our listeners listening to this, wherever they are in the world, are they able to apply for season two? Our goal with the program currently is that it is for those who are based in the U.S. or have the ability to work within the U.S., so with season one, tell me a bit more about the process of you working with the filmmakers and the mentoring. Are there any particular moments that stick in your mind that you thought, oh gosh, I love my job. I'm so happy I'm doing this because it sounds like it could be really rewarding. One thing I love about the program, there are many things, but uh, we built a community without even knowing it. And that was through our classes. We had 20 classes taught by American Film Institute and our partners as well as we try to offer creative opportunities when we could. So for example, we right before the first nationwide shutdown within the U.S., we took our filmmakers up to Pixar for a creative field trip. And that was so neat. They have uh, such an amazing shorts program called Pixar Spark Shorts. And they gave us a sneak peek of some of their shorts, our directors got to meet the filmmakers and hear their own personal stories. And uh, we got to meet some of the most talented, creative minds and geniuses behind just such beautiful stories. And even getting to visit Pixar alone, you just feel the creativity emanate within the walls. And we were so lucky to be able to have that in-person experience right before essentially we all uh, started quarantining. Embrace yourself and really be who you are. We all have a light in us and that's the beauty of it. Being on set was so fun. It's joyful. Everyone in the family can enjoy it together, get inspiration, maybe even change their lives. Our filmmakers were inspired by Pixar Story Trust, by Walt Disney Animation Story Trust to form their own Story Trust. So from day one, our first class, they all started their own group text to give each other script notes, 
to help each other throughout the entire process and create their very own story trust. That's cool. So they they in, innovated that themselves and decided that would be a great plan to collaborate and support. Exactly. Really inspired by Pixar and Walt Disney Animation Studios. Who Fantastic. Tell me more a little bit about the feminist side of this. Um, are there any particular feminist themes explored in the shorts that you'd like to highlight? We're really proud that first season one, the majority of our filmmakers are women. Really, we always say, what is the story that you want to tell? They applied with the script that they were looking to tell. What are different kind of themes they're looking to uh, convey? Uh, I think going back to our classes, actually week two of our classes, we're very intentional. We had a class on unconscious bias. We had a class on anti-racism. So some of that I know was really illuminating for our filmmakers and uh, information that they kind of still carry on and talk about to this day. So in our unconscious bias training, for example, our instructor had shared that studies have shown that when hurricanes are named after women, uh, the people within the neighborhood or the town actually don't leave their houses as quickly as they should compared to when hurricanes are named after men because of unconscious bias of not taking us seriously. And I know our filmmakers still talk about learning that. That is shocking. I thought you were going to say hurricanes are normally named after women and I was thinking, I've I've often thought, is that a bit insulting, you know, about, you know, perceptions of women, but that's really scary that it has that directed effect or something so life-threatening. And what kind of use does that information have, practical use does that information have for the filmmakers? Do you think it's been making them question how, what they do their characters, what gender their characters are, that sort of thing? Part of what we also were looking to do is follow the exact same process, our own titles, uh, our own films and series follow. So for example, our creative executives in partnership with our team will bring on historians, experts, consultants to make sure our films are culturally authentic and accurate. And also that they are free of stereotypes and tropes. And we brought that same lens to these short films as well. So we had um, members of the community kind of weigh in and offer their own notes on uh, cultural authenticity, representation, and things like that. Again, really looking for this to be a training ground in the studio system and following the exact same process we do on all of our beloved films and series. So how do you think the Disney now differs from the Disney that you sort of grew up watching? And what do you think the future holds? I think for my family, um, so I'm first generation Muslim Bangladeshi. My parents love watching Bangla television. They love watching American news. Really for us, it was a huge treat to watch a movie, an American movie, in a movie theater especially. Uh, so my one of my favorite all-time uh, movies growing up is Beauty and the Beast. What is amazing about entertainment is there's always progress, there's always change. Uh, the goal is to always have, make movies and series that resonate with the audience. So I think we've seen that within Disney as well. So for example, I love Beauty and the Beast so much. I've seen every iteration of Beauty and the Beast on ice and on stage, <laughs> stage plays, school plays. And it's amazing that in my own lifetime, Disney did a reimagining as well. Uh, and so part of the reimaginings is also all about how can we really make a film now that resonates with the audiences of the 20, you know, first century uh, versus when the film first came out. So you'll see those changes 
in our movies as well. So I think that's just one example of Disney being very nimble, giving the audience what they want, essentially. Well, we're also talking to the Raya and the Last Dragon team for this episode, and it is wonderful to see how much attention is being given to representation on screen. What can we look forward to? Is there any other specific projects coming up that you'd like to highlight outside of this um, Launchpad series that we could get excited about from a feminist perspective? Well, I will say that for Launchpad, applications for season two are open. Uh, so we're really excited about that as well. Uh, and uh, Philip Donfey is running season two and has added a writer's track. So looking to kind of widen the impact and work with more artists and kind of bring them into the fold. So very excited about season two. And what advice would you give anyone who's applying? What, what, kind, what, what should they be thinking about when they're applying? You can never really determine the outcome of anything creative. So my advice is to enjoy the journey um, because that is something you have control over is enjoy the process of, of creation and making and really do it for yourself. And for any female filmmakers listening in general, um, I obviously these are encouraging times and opportunities are opening up. Any general words of advice for them? What really we're all looking for when it comes to stories is extremely personal and emotional storytelling. And women have such personal and emotional storytelling to kind of share. I can't wait really for the world to hear more of those stories. Thank you so much, Mahin, for joining Girls on Film. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Anna. It's great to meet you. That was Mahin Ibrahim. You can find the Launchpad shorts and Raya and the Last Dragon on Disney Plus now. And Raya is also in UK cinemas, along with Cruella and A Quiet Place 2. There's also a great selection of films coming up in the Bagri Foundation London Indian Film Festival and its sister festivals in Birmingham and Manchester. They'll be celebrating great British Asians like Gurinder Chada, and they open with a feminist film documentary called Womb, Woman of My Billion, on the 17th of June at the BFI. I will be there, so maybe see you there. If you fancy some more feminist film fun, then visit our Patreon page or find us on socials where we still are recommending a film a day. Girls on Film is an HLA production, brought to you by executive producer Heather Archbold, audio producer Emma Butt, assistant producers Heather Dempsey and Eliana Jay, and our principal partner, Peter Brewer. You've been listening to me, Anna Smith, and I was joined by Larushka Ivanzada, Adele Lim, Oznat Shura, and Mahin Ibrahim. See you soon. I am woman, hear me roar.